Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 51. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. We have a very special guest for this podcast. I'm talking Professor Confidence himself, the author of The Complete Juggler, Dave Finnegan. Before we get to Dave, though, let's thank our sponsors, starting with our most important sponsor, the number one sponsor of this program, the IJA, International Jugglers Association, a group I've been a member of since 1980. To find out about the IJA, go to juggle.org. Sponsor number two and three are based on the Ring Dama. That's right, the toy I invented, the Ring Dama, is now being sold. You can get it from two different places. You can go to ringdama.com to get the original Ring Dama, or go to Zing Toys to get the Zing Dama, the LED version. So if you like this podcast, if you want to see what my toy is all about, pick yourself up a Ring Dama or a Zing Dama today. And now, drop everything, get ready for... Mr. Dave Finnegan. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, number 51. A very special guest, Professor Confidence himself, Mr. Dave Finnegan. Welcome, Dave. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Nice to uh, hear your voice. I've always loved hearing your voice. Well, thank you, Dave. <laughs> oh, Dave, look how it lies there. A little, little blast from the past there for you. This is a real pleasure for me, too, because we go way back. I think we first met in 1977. Uh, that's when you were with Peter Davidson, I think, touring around Los Angeles. And we met at the Santa Monica Pier. Yeah, uh, Peter and I formed a partnership called Professor Confidence and Peter. <laughs> and uh, I would go out and underwhelm people with an opening. And then I would introduce Peter and he would overwhelm them with some incredible stuff that they'd never seen before and will never see again. Well, we'll get to that aspect of your life, but there's so much to cover. So let's jump right into the, the very beginning of your, of your story. Now, you grew up in a Navy family. What was it like uh, being the son of a Navy officer and all that travel? How'd that inform the beginning of your life, Dave? Yeah, I was the son of a Naval officer, and I was the grandson of a Marine colonel who was also a three-term congressman. Oh. So I grew up in a household that was pretty strict, where we were expected to say yes, sir, and no, sir, and not to use bad language and so forth. And that was really good training for eventually working in elementary schools, where I have only at one time uh, said a bad word in front <laughs> of kids. And we traveled all over the world. My dad was assigned in Japan and in Guam and all over the East Coast and West Coast of the U.S. And we just traveled with him. And we went to many, many schools. And I think that's the best part is that I learned how to make friends quickly and to fit in to any group in my own way so that I didn't ever feel like I was an outsider. Any circus or juggling or art in that uh, upbringing or, or just strictness? Any theater or any kind of uh, interest in that kind of thing? The main activity for me was I was a born environmentalist and everywhere we went, I would find a way to get outdoors and, and be in nature. Luckily, almost every summer, we went to Cape Cod, to Barnstable on the North Shore of Cape Cod. And so for 17 summers, I got to go uh, muck around in the marshlands and, and sail a little dinghy that I had and be a real outdoors kid. And I don't think I even heard about a television set until I was uh, probably a sophomore in high school. So I was out there and all summer I read books. I'd have a big stack at the beginning of summer and I'd read right through them so that by the end of summer I would have read 15 or 20 books. So that was really a, a great way to spend my time and taught me to get out and explore and learn. And I've always been a lifelong learner as a result. Then how did uh, juggling in, come into your life and where did the bug catch you? Well, I was in a uh, doctoral program at the University of Washington in Seattle. I had just completed a decade working in family planning programs in East Asia, in Korea and Taiwan and the Philippines. And I was going back to kind of get the union card that would allow me to continue to work in that area. And I saw a friend of mine, uh, John Ross, who was returning from Asia to the US and he had juggled three shot glasses at 
a Giseng party. Now, a little sidebar here. Okay. Giseng party in Korea is like a geisha party in Japan. It's totally innocent, but seems like it's going to be a lot of, you know, sexual innuendo. Just and flirtation so and things like it's that. It's just flirtation. So we were at a Giseng party, and every time you went to a Giseng party, at the end of the evening, all of the guests, each of them one by one, would get up and do something. Oh. Uh, and so I would always sing a Korean song, and everybody thought that was just peachy, that a, that a foreigner would learn a Korean song. But John would juggle, and he juggled three shot glasses, because we always had these little ceramic shot glasses at the Giseng parties. And I was totally mesmerized with that. So when he came through Seattle on the way to New York City, he stopped overnight at our place. And I said, would you juggle for Davy, my son, who was then about two or three years old? And he juggled for Davy and Davy loved it. <laughs> right. So I said, can you teach me how to do it? And he said, well, you know what? I learned it picking apples in Washington state or, or upstate New York or wherever he was growing up. And I, I never learned how I learned. We all just knew how to do it. So I don't think I can teach you. So I went, boy, I really want to learn this. So I went to the local bookstore and I found the juggling book by Carlo. And I took that book out to the Cascade Mountains. I said to my wife, Thelma, uh, sweetheart, I'm going to come back when I know how to juggle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she said, I'm never going to see you again. <laughs> Six and, months later. <laughs> so it took a long weekend. And right. when I got back, I had this god-awful pattern, but I could do it. Everything peaked about 14 feet over my head. You know, when you first start, you right. need all that extra time. And you're chasing them in front of you, so you're probably running a running after them a lot. Yeah, and I ran after them a bit and so forth. So then I saw a juggler on campus at the University of Washington. And he, I said, can you refine my pattern? And he said, you just got to bring it down. Right. And then I realized that Carlo's book had led me astray because he didn't show an infinity sign pattern. He showed an arc, which of course we all know is not the way the juggling ball moves. No. So I started taking notes. And since I was 35 years old at the time, taking notes on this and being in a doctoral program, made a lot of sense. And at the end of, oh, about two or three months, I had a little booklet that I'd created on how to learn to juggle. Hmm. And so I started going around teaching other people how to do this, especially the kids in the neighborhood. We used lacrosse balls because that was all that was available in 1976, or maybe it was 75. And we would go with these lacrosse balls out in the courtyard in front of the house, and they'd bounce all over the place. I knew there had to be a better uh, solution than lacrosse balls. And I went, okay, I've got to learn more about juggling. And I went to my first juggling festival, and that was in Delaware. At that festival, I saw real juggling for the first time. And I said, I really want to do this. Now, I did bring some product to that festival because I had gone back to Taiwan to collect data for my doctoral dissertation. And I took with me some juggling equipment that I had purchased from real jugglers. Like I took a Sue Ren Stu Reynolds club mm -hmm. uh, made out of fiberglass. They weighed about a pound each and they hurt the heck out of your hands. Yeah, very hard, very stiff. Yeah. They, they're good teachers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so I took one of those and I didn't have a ring to take, so we had to make a ring there. And I uh, designed a, a cubicle bean bag. And then we got a little bouncy ball two and a quarter inches across and one with ribs on it. We called it the rib ball. Right. And I brought those things back with me in sample quantities when I came back to Seattle from Taiwan. I was committed at that point, not to my finish my doctoral dissertation, right, right. but to get juggling started huh. because it, like so many people, when the light went on over my head and I knew that I knew how to juggle, I went, why didn't somebody teach me this? <laughs> it's so much fun. So that's how I got into it. Yeah, because you had this whole backstory before you even started juggling. I never even knew that you were in the army, but you had quite a career as a U.S. Army officer. Is that how you ended up in South Korea? 
Yes, it is. What happened was after Cornell, where I did my undergraduate work, I was required, as was everyone back then, to go into U.S. military service. Right. That's about the time of Vietnam, around that time? Yeah, it was just before Vietnam. Since my dad had been in the Navy and my grandfather had been in the Marine Corps, it made perfect sense for me to go in the Army. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> you get all the bases covered. Yep. Yeah. Well, my dad had always gotten seasick, and I didn't want to do that. Oh. <laughs> He's the captain of the ship, and he'd be in his quarters for the first three days of every cruise because he was adjusting right. to being back at He's sea. In his sea leg. Yeah. And I never got sea legs. Uh, I was a small boat kind of guy. And so I uh, went through the ROTC program. Then I did my basic training in Georgia. And then I, I did, I stayed because I was having fun and I went to airborne school and I got to jump out of airplanes. Oh. And I went to ranger school and I got to learn <laughs> how to through the swamps and kill people with a shoelace and things like that. Gotcha. And then I was overtrained, so to speak. So they shipped me to Germany and I spent three years at an isolated base called Wild Flecken. It's actually Wildflecken, but we called it Wild Flecken. And in a, a depot town called Giesen on the Lahn River. And I had a great time. Uh, this was 1963 to mm. 66. And then I got this letter from President Lyndon Johnson. And it said, Dear Captain Finnegan, Due to the situation that exists in, South, in Southeast Asia, and because of your extensive extra training with the military, you're being retained beyond your term of obligated service. Your extension is for an additional two years. They could do that. They, they, you'd have no choice. Still can do that. Oh. You belong to that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I, that must have been quite a shock that you had two more years to serve. Oh, yeah. I was finished as far as I was yeah. concerned. So uh, then I, I got orders. He said, the letter said, your orders are forthcoming. I should have kept that letter because it was yeah. signed by President Johnson. That's pretty intense, too, that the president himself is saying, hey, we need you. You got two more years to serve. Exactly. And this was 66, and things right. were blowing up in 66. Right, right. Uh, and so I uh, called the Pentagon, first overseas phone call I'd ever made. And I got the guy who signed my orders, a major. And I said, Major, <laughs> you've got two problems. <laughs> right. One is the Vietnam War and the other is me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I've finished my three years of service. I am not going to go to Vietnam because I got orders to play coup. First cavalry. And I wasn't going to go. I was right, like, right. no. And he's, and after I'd ranted for a while, he said, well, calm down, Captain. How about if we send you to Korea? And I said, oh, Korea? Sure, I'd love to go to Korea. <laughs> okay. I ended up going to Korea, and, and on the way from Germany to Korea, I stopped at the Population Council in New York because I was adamant that the three billion people we were about to have on the planet were about as many as we needed in order to keep this thing going. Right. And so I wanted to work in population and family planning. And my, anywhere, right, Korea, right. great place to start. So when I landed in Korea, after having visited the Population Council in New York and having been told that they did have a man on the ground in Korea, but that he was really hard to find, I got picked up at the airport in Korea by the fellow who I was replacing, because that's mm -hmm. the way they worked it, you know. He would yeah. guard you and shepherd you for two weeks, and then he got to leave. because Show you the ropes. Yeah. And then you took over his job. So his name was Captain Pence, and Captain Pence said, well, Captain Finnegan, uh, what do you expect to accomplish when you're here in Korea? And I said, I have only one thing I want to do. <laughs> I want to find Paul Hartman. And he said, well, that won't be difficult, because his wife, Virginia, is your secretary. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I immediately volunteered uh, my evenings and weekends for the family planning program of Korea. And after 18 months in Korea, the military let me go and I took an overseas discharge and kept working for Paul Hartman and worked for him for three more years as the information, education and communications consultant 
to the government of the Republic of Korea for family planning. And that's how I got into Korea, and that's how come I stayed. Hmm. So you're on the track to have a career in family planning and population control. Now all of a sudden juggling comes in. How hard was it to transition to become a juggler? And what does your family think about all of a sudden the sort of change of pace coming from this, the upbringing that you did? Yeah, well, my wife loved it because it meant that we wouldn't be traveling all around the world. We would stay in the U.S., which right. was great. I called my mom and I <laughs> said, Mom, I'm thinking of dropping out of my doctoral program. No reaction. Okay. Right. said, I'm thinking of becoming a professional juggling teacher. And you're about 35 at this point. So you're not, you're not, you're just, you're calling your mom just for. Yeah, I was 35. I had a master's degree. I had uh, a career started. Uh, I was on the verge of a PhD. And I said, <laughs> what do you think about that, mom? And she said, anything that makes you happy. Oh. Wow. That's a nice response, isn't it? What a great mom. Great so mom, yeah. It took a while to wind down the doctoral program, but that was the start. And then everything flowed from there. Well, let's jump back to the 70s. Why do you think it was important to spend some time performing on the streets? Was that to get experience? or Because you, you obviously had a plan about teaching juggling and creating props. But why do you feel the need to, to sort of perform on the streets as well? Well, I was 35 then. And here was a guy who could just barely keep four balls going and was working on five and was 35 years old. So I had to prove to the juggling population that I was really a juggler, that my heart was really in this, because people thought that I was a prop manufacturer. Right. I never th thought that about myself. I always thought I was a juggling teacher. And the reason that I started making props was because there were none available. And I started going around to my neighborhood kids, and then I went around to schools and boys and girls clubs and, and YMCA and, and did classes on juggling, but I didn't have anything to teach with. So I would go get tennis balls and fill them up with BBs or gravel and then teach with those. So it became apparent that somebody had to start making the equipment. That's how I started making the equipment. But then once you start making the equipment, you got to go out and get people to use it and get their hands on it. And I, I wanted other jugglers to help me to do that. So I had to be a real juggler right. uh, in order to do that. So that's why I went down to LA and met you and, and Peter Davidson and that wonderful crowd down there. It, it was uh, the summer that Star Wars first opened mm -hmm. and we would go down to the line <laughs> at the movie theater. Right, right. would have, oh, um, boy, I can't remember all the names, but there, Steve Mills was one and- sure. uh, and of course, uh, uh, Barrett Felker and, uh, oh, uh, Dan. Um, Menendez, maybe? No, no. Dan the, uh, Bennett? No, no. Da he, Dan Rosen? Dan Rosen. <laughs> Dan Rosen. Going through the Dan's. Yeah. yeah. We would all line up in front of the line at Star Wars, and they'd be stuck there for hours, know, huh? an hour or more waiting yeah. for a ticket and we would stand there and I would announce the group and I would say, you will never in your life see this again. You're about to see 25 clubs juggled at the same time. And then I would introduce these five jugglers. They would all juggle five clubs at the same time and take a bow. And it was wonderful. We had such a good time. We didn't make much money, but we would go right. over to a local um, a restaurant, a chain restaurant, and we would dump <laughs> four or five hats out on you. Right, table. get all the crumpled and bills and straighten them out. And I remember getting kicked out of that restaurant for having done that. And we we did fine. We had a great summer that summer. And, and then Peter went on to air jazz and uh, everybody went their own way. But uh, it was a real lesson for me in how to assemble a crowd, how to get them settled in, entertain them, ask them politely to pay, get the money and send them on their way. <laughs> that's a very, that's a good lesson because now you're going into manufacturing, juggling props. At the time, there's nobody making them. There's no really established market for them. What do you feel about all that risk you were taking on? Did you see it as a, a, a no-brainer? This is going to be a, a surefire thing or were you full of trepidation? I had no fear. Oh, uh, okay. As far as I was concerned, 
everybody would be as in love with juggling as I was. I figured I'd be in the industry for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, and by then the whole world would be juggling, and it would all be over. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, it'd all be over. Juggling would take it over by then. Yeah, yeah. I, I was very optimistic about what would happen with juggling, and it was always a challenge to get in front of people and get their hands on the product. So I started by doing the obvious, which is going to my local recreation center and offering to teach a class. Well, as with many people, I had 15 or 20 folks show up at the first class and pay their $3 or whatever it was. And then half that number would show up at the second class and then one quarter that number at the third class. And by the end of the series, I'd have three or four people. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Is it too challenging, you think? Yeah, I, I think that there's this, nat this normal curve of people and half of the people get stymied after one class and quit. And then half of the people uh, continue, but half of that half drops out each week. Now that was back in the bouncy ball days right. and the beanbag days. I saw a physical education teacher named Mark Sutherland in Carmichael, California. And he was working with his kindergarten kids on throwing and catching skills using nylon scarves. And boy, a light bulb went on over my head. I went, that's how you learn to juggle, with nylon scarves. Once you learn the pattern, then it's just a matter of hand position to transfer from scarves to balls, to rings, to clubs, to anything else. The rhythm is the same, the patterns are the same. The timing is faster with other stuff, but because it's nice and slow, anybody can do it. And so on my next trip to Asia, I went up to Japan where they made nylon scarves at that point, and I bought a truckload of nylon scarves and brought them back and started going around to schools and teaching kids to juggle with scarves. And that was the breakthrough that really made Jugglebug our equipment company and the Juggling Institute which was our instructional arm, it made them really effective, was having something like that that could slow it down and make it easy for everybody. And then what other uh, prop makers had come on the scene? I remember, of course, Dubay and Todd Smith. There was Lee Letchworth who made the like foam-injected clubs. We had a set of those the Raspinis did early on. And those are funny clubs because if they got hot, they would start to expand <laughs> and they create like bubbles and they get all warty. We had one club called the Elephant Club after the <laughs> Elephant Man. They were wonderful clubs. They had a great feel, especially for the Renaissance fairs. They had kind yeah. of an old-fashioned look. But they got really funky in the sun. Did you guys, were you all were you competitive with these guys? Did you all kind of bond together to try to expand juggling? How was it like with the early days of the, the prop industry? Well, I never felt competitive with anybody because I felt that Jugglebug was dealing with the base of the pyramid. So just imagine a pyramid in front of you. Yeah. The base is huge, but the Dubay and Todd Smith and Letchworth were dealing mainly with the top of the pyramid. And there were a lot more people in the base than there were in the top of the pyramid. So I felt that Jugglebug's role was to feed baby jugglers mm. into the system and that then the others would take over and get better equipment into their hands so that they could progress and become really good. That's why our stuff was always available in your local magic store and always cheap comparatively. I mean, we sold a set of clubs for $25 yeah. retail and you couldn't even buy one Dubai club for $25 retail when we were doing that. So they probably saw me as a spoiler. <laughs> I never right, saw right. me as a spoiler. I saw me as the guy who was helping them to grow their business. And my theme always was, as long as you have a boat in the harbor, when the tide comes in, your boat is gonna go up. And yeah. I had a boat in the harbor and so did they. So their feelings of competitiveness never bothered me. I just kept doing what I was doing because I knew it was the right thing to do. I taught over a million kids how to juggle and went to over 2000 elementary schools over a period of 30 years. and. You know, I, I had people who would come up to me at the Seattle Center where we had a, an event and they'd say, you taught me to juggle when I was in school. Now, can you teach my kids? And now I've got people who are writing me and saying, you taught me. I taught my kids. Can you teach my grandchildren how to juggle? 
So yeah, that's my role was to push the big snowball down the hill. You know, to just... yeah. We always thought of juggle bug as like the entry level juggling equipment. Right. Like you were sort of the Mattel, like the yeah. You were cheaper. The quality wasn't you know for like a, a serious juggler was sort of difficult because those juggling the first set of clubs were you know compared to the the Dubays or the Todd Smiths harder to use. I have to say. Yeah. You know, sure. So many people I knew, their first set were Juggle Bug Clubs. So I always thought of you as the, yeah, you were the entry level. You were the gateway to juggling for so many people. So many people. Juggle Bug was a gateway drug to juggling. Yep, yep. Yeah, to, to the Dubai long handle. The Juggle Bug was the gateway drug. Yeah. Uh, or the Todd Smith American, I should say. Now, uh, when did the Europeans get involved, and who were the first Europeans to get on the scene? <laughs> well, uh, I've got a story about that. I used to go to the European Festival. I went to the second one, which was in England somewhere. What year was that? When did oh, that start? Boy, I have no idea. In the oh, early 80s, 80s, 70s? Early, yeah, early 80s. Okay, early 80s. And so I went to number two, and I went to number three, and four, and five, and six. And every time I went, I would take a suitcase or two, or three or four of juggling props with me to sell to the Europeans. I would open the suitcase and it would be gone. <laughs> okay. I was so excited. Well, finally, I went to Frankfurt. And you can look up the year. I don't know what year it was. Right. But I went to the Frankfurt Juggling Festival and I took myself, my juggling partner, one Israel, my female juggling partner, my sister-in-law, Amy Adams, and my sister. So there were four of us, and I paid their transportation, and they each took two suitcases full of juggling equipment. So we had eight suitcases full of juggling equipment. We opened those suitcases, and nobody bought anything. Oh, they had caught up to you, huh? <laughs> because by that time, the Europeans had caught on and went, we don't have to buy this American stuff. We <laughs> our own. So I ended up leaving all that juggling equipment with a, a toy store in Germany, and I guess they sold it off over a number of years, but that was a, a big load of juggling equipment. And I went to future European juggling festivals, but not to sell stuff, uh, to sell books and to sell videos. Now, speaking of books, now your book, it's uh, I think over 500 pages, like 576 pages, that's what my notes say. Yep. The Complete Juggler. What motivated that? And, and how did you come up with such a great book at the time? It really was a, a very, Complete book, very well done. I, I always thought that was a, a very important sort of milestone in the, the educational part of juggling. How'd that come about? Well, as I said, when I started learning, I started taking notes. And so I wrote my first little booklet, The Joy of Juggling, based on my first year of practice. And that's just a 100-page book. It's not a big deal. But then I broke up each of the chapters in that book into an instruction booklet and when we would sell a set of scarves or balls or rings or clubs or a devil stick or a diablo you would get the booklet and so at the end of oh six years or so i had a stack of booklets enough to make a book so then i took the joy of juggling and all these booklets and i spent literally a year isolated with a wonderful artist named bruce edwards and he and I worked every day for a year on changing all of this into a book. And the way that we did it, because it's hard to get me to sit down in one place, <laughs> uh, the way we did it was I rented a room in an office building midway between Bruce's house and my house. And I paid for six months in advance. And I put a, a nice artist table in there. And I said, Bruce, I'm going to be in there every day. And I want you in there every day for a year. We're going to get this thing done. And so every day we would meet in that space for at least four or five hours. And I would pose and he would draw from the pose or take photos and then draw from the photos. And that's how we got over a thousand line drawings. And if there was a trick that I couldn't do, then I would have Amy or John Webster or Robert Stuverud or, or one of the other people with whom I was working uh, demonstrate that, and we take photos of them doing it. And so they ended up in the book 
because they did the things that I couldn't do. And so if you see somebody in the book doing something, it's because that's the thing that they could do that I couldn't do. And as you go through the book, you go step by step, basically through the way that I learned to juggle and the way that I taught juggling. So that's why we called it the complete juggler. But of course, the day it was published, jugglers started saying, this isn't the complete juggler. Look what you left out. Hmm. There was some temptation to write a supplement called the more complete juggler. Right. (laughs) Yeah, they'll never actually be able to be a complete juggler because it never ends, right? It's always... It never ends. It never ends. Now, writing a book is one thing, but how how are you going to publish? Because you got to publish by Random House, which is a pretty established publishing house. Yeah. For not maybe juggling, not always the best sell. How did you get that to happen? I looked in Carlo's book. Right. And I saw where he had gotten it published. And I called and I said, who's the editor who worked on Carlo's book? And they told me. And so I wrote her. And Mm. I sent her the manuscript, 576 pages. And I said, I've written the book, which is the successor to the Carlo book. And I would like it to be considered by Random House. And that was, I mailed it on like a Wednesday. And on Friday, I sent it by express mail. On Friday, I got a phone call. Don't offer that book to anyone else. We want it Random House. Now that flies in the face of everyone else's publishing experience. Like the J.K. Rowling story was not quite the same where everybody turned her down and the 18th or 20th accepted it. You had like a four-day turnaround. Exactly. It was (laughs) was amazing. And they said, we're going to offer you a book tour and a $20,000 advance. (laughs) All right. So you went on a book tour. What was that? You got on a book tour. What what was the the book tour like? Well, I went to 12 cities. Okay. And I was on the local morning show in 12 cities, or I was on a national show like Mike Douglas or... uh, Regis Philbin, back when he was just Regis Philbin, it was called Regis. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd go on that show and I would teach the host and their guests to juggle with scarves. And it was a lot of fun. And I got to see the backstage of an awful lot of uh, studios around the country. And they put me in nice hotels and gave me a budget for a rental car and uh, or a taxi wherever I went. And then I just went on the show and did my 10-minute segment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Of the hour, yeah. Yeah, and then that was it. Unfortunately, this was so long ago that there are no videotapes Mm. of any of that. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't even before before VCRs and everything. We we always Professor Confidence. Where where did the Professor Confidence name come from, and when did you start using it? Yeah, that came from my son, from Davey. He decided that I was Professor Confidence. (laughs) Okay. I thought, okay, well, I'll be Professor Confidence. Yeah, good name. It really worked well. Yeah. And in schools, I got to say, now, I'm Professor Confidence, and you kids can call me by my first name. That's Professor. And so all day, <laughs> instead of saying, Dave, 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 right, professor. these little kids were saying, Professor, Professor, Professor. And it was wonderful. And they still, if they see me somewhere, they say, oh, there's Professor Confidence. So it really worked. It was a stage name that fit, and I really felt like I was teaching confidence. The juggling was my cover. Mm -hmm. What I was really teaching was success. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. You teach someone to juggle. It's such a a concrete example of, here's something you couldn't do. Now with a little effort, a little bit of instruction, you've accomplished something. And by accomplishing things, you get confidence. Absolutely. And that's basically what I would say at the end of every show. Here's how the school day works. And anybody is welcome to copy this because it Mm -hmm. works. You start with a teacher's meeting in the morning and you get the teachers to the point where they go, I can do it. And then you loan them three scarves and send them off to greet their kids. Now it's eight o'clock and the kids are beginning to file in and there's the teacher standing at the classroom door juggling. And she says, kids, I'm gonna introduce you to Professor Confidence today and we're all gonna go down to the gym and we're all gonna take a juggling class. Then you take the kids a grade level at a time and each grade gets a piece of the puzzle. So the kindergartners get to do throw and catch 
with one scarf. Throw and clap and catch, throw and turn and catch, throw and blow your nose and catch. Just a lot of things. And they're all in the songs that I later wrote because the instructions became the songs. So at the end of that kindergarten class, I say to the kindergartners, we're gonna have an assembly at the end of the day and you get to do your piece in the assembly. So that gets them all jacked up for the assembly. Then you take the first graders, the whole first grade all at one time. So that may be a hundred kids. And you teach them all to do crisscross applesauce, which is just two scarves, making an X in the air, catching one by one. Then you get the second grade. And with the second grade, you teach them to do two in one hand. Hmm. And then, very important, two in the other hand. So they use both hands equally. And then with the third grade, you actually teach them to do columns so that they can do three straight up and down. And as far as they're concerned, they're juggling. That's great for them. By the time they're in fourth grade, every kid in the fourth grade can do the cascade. And the fifth graders can do all of the above. Plus, they can go under their leg and behind their back and do a pirouette. And if they can do all of that, then even in that first brush with juggling, I give them hands-on with beanbags. And they get to try the beanbags. And, and some of them, by the end of that first 40-minute class, some of them will have gone through everything in scarves and gotten to the point where they can do a decent cascade for 20 throws and catches with three beanbags because fifth graders are awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then at the end of the day, we have an all-school assembly. And the assembly is the last hour of the school day. So now I've had done back-to-back -back classes all day. There are about 30 minutes for the little guys, 40 minutes for the older kids. And then we have our all-school assembly. And in the all-school assembly, I say, now it's time for our first act, the kindergartners. And I put mm. on juggling music and they get up and they juggle. And then I, I say, now it's time for our next act, the first graders. And they get up and so forth. And we run right through it, just like we did in the classes. And then I say, and now they came in early. They took an extra juggling class. <laughs> okay. Ladies and gentlemen, they're right. itching to get up on stage. Here they are, the teachers. Oh, <laughs> right, right other like oh my god this guy's <laughs> and as they come up past me they go i'm gonna get you for this i'm gonna get right, you right 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 and then they get up there and they juggle for their kids and the music is playing i always would play something like rock around the clock or la bamba or something that something they would upbeat recognize yeah that would be something they would like and then they take a bow and the kids are screaming they're so excited and then the teachers go back and the kids hug them and tell them how good they looked on stage and so forth and then i do my poem and my poem is if you think you'll drop you'll drop if you're afraid to catch you don't if you'd like to juggle but think you can't i'll tell you right now you won't if you think you'll fail you've failed for out in the world you'll find success begins with self-confidence it's all in your state of mind but some folks lose their confidence before a ball is thrown and many a juggler quits the stage before their name is known think big and practice and grow think small and you'll fall behind think that you can and you will it's all in your state of mind if you think you're outclassed you are through confidence and practice you rise you got to be sure of yourself to reach that juggler's prize life's battles don't always go to the strongest woman or man but the person who wins the juggler's crown is the person who says i can what do you guys say and they all shout i can and then I take a bow and that's the end of the program. But I tell them, now tonight we're gonna have family night. Here's what I want you to remember. Everybody repeat after me. But mom, but mom, we've gotta go back to school. We've gotta go back to school. I'm the star of the juggling show. I'm the star of the juggling show. And you are. I'll see you tonight. I'm Professor Confidence. Bye-bye. That's a great program. I guess the question now is, how do you book the program and how do you do it and how do you justify to the schools that juggling is actually something important? First, I went to all the physical education. And how do you get money? How do you get money, Dave? Yeah, that's it. It is how you get money. I went to all the physical education conventions all over the country. I bought one of those pop-up booths and mm -hmm. I put up the booth in the exhibit area and I would get on the program and I would tell them, tell the people who are organizing the convention, I will rent a booth in your exhibit area if you'll put me on the program. And so they'd put me on the program and then sometimes I'd be the opening act for the whole convention, which was great. Then I'd have 500 Pennsylvania PE teachers all in one place. Mm. So these are the state level PE conventions. 
And then I get the teachers in my class and I'd say, now, after you leave class, come over to the booth and I'll give you a free set of scarves. So then they come to the booth for a free set of scarves. And of course, when they got the free set of scarves, in order to get your free set of scarves, you got to give me your name, address, and phone number. Right. <laughs> and so that's, Building that list, yeah. So I build a database. And then I would say, I'm going back to Pennsylvania. I would figure what my route was through the state. And I would send out 100 letters to 100 PE teachers who had been in my program and ask them if we... They wanted me to come to their school, and I'd give them an insert that they'd give to the PTA president, and I'd say, this is just like any other program that the PTA brings in from the outside, because you know they're going to bring in programs. So the PTA pays for the program, and the program has both an entertainment value and an educational value, because we assume that learning how to juggle improves tracking and improves your ability to focus and improves your ability to sequence. And that's all basic to reading. And it improves your ability to to do things that lead to math. And so juggling really is basic education that helps a physically active child become a mentally active child. And so they really liked that pitch. And they could relay that justification to the principal and to the PTA parents. And so I never had pushback on price. In fact, I was charging $500 per school day for a number of years. And I went to a school on Long Island. And after the show, the principal came up to me after family night, and he gave me my check for 500. And he said, I will never give you a check for 500 again. He said, the next check I want to give you is for $1,000. I want you back next year. Hmm. And if you ever advertise your program at $500 again, I don't want you back. Yours is a $1,000 program. You ask for $1,000. And I went, oh, yes, sir, I will right away. (laughs) That's a good school. Wow. And didn't see any diminution whatsoever in the bookings. In fact, bookings went up, particularly in Smithtown, Long Island, where he came from. So he spread the word, and pretty soon we were at all the schools in Smithtown and all the schools. You know, we would get into a district like Jacksonville, Florida. We went to 27 elementary schools in one district in one year because Mm -hmm. we had a PE teacher in there who understood what we were doing, saw what we were doing, and really believed in what we were doing. Her name was Jan Tipton, and Jan got us into schools throughout the district. So that's what you need to do is find somebody who will be your advocate from within, but they're not going to do it unless they see you in action and understand that what you're doing really works. Now, it wasn't just you. You worked with lots of young jugglers and juggling teams over the years. What was that experience like? And some of them, of course, went on for professional careers. Any experiences you can share with the young jugglers who came through your program? Well, what I did really was give them a safe space in which to be themselves and gave them a little bit of coaching about things that I'd seen from other jugglers, but all the skill stuff they did on their own. So I had the gentleman jugglers, that's John and Robert. I had a couple who shall remain unnamed because they deny that they ever had anything to do with me, but one of them is presently in jail in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, he's he's someone we have not mentioned on the podcast. His name has not come up. I know you had had some involvement with him, but we will leave it at that. Okay. And and then there's also one, one with initials JG. Oh, well, yeah, we could talk about Jason Garfield, right? Garfield, who used to come to our house every Saturday and spend the entire day. But if you ask him that, he will deny it. So it's okay. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> He'll deny it. <laughs> there's, there's no Jungle Bug connection. Like, Jungle Bug who? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He'd say, I have no connect. I've never seen the. I never met the man. <laughs> mm, exactly. Uh, but we know the truth, David. We know we know the truth. Oh, yeah. John Webster and Robert Stuverud were my first pair. And then I had Tim Graham and his partner, who has had to change his name, but not for the same reason as the other guy. And oh, that's okay. Ron Myers, who is, oh, Ron Myers. Yeah. He's a professional com- comedian now. Yeah, he changed it for show business purposes. I know Ron, yeah. Yeah. And okay. uh, he's Ron something else now. Pearson. He's Ron Pearson. Ron Pearson. Yeah, Ron Pearson. They were a wonderful team. And I took 
I took both those teams to schools all over the Northwest. And then we had a team from the Philippines, the Philippine Pride Jugglers. Mm -hmm. And these were kids, when I visited my wife, my wife's in the Philippines from a small village in Negros Oriental, a, a southern province. And when I first went to that village, the level of education was elementary at best. Uh, nobody had ever gone out and gone to college or even high school. There were no paved roads. There was no electricity and there was no running water. Well, there was running water. Running water was a, a small boy with a bucket. That's hmm. running water. Uh, <laughs> and uh, these kids were languishing. And I went, boy, what a great opportunity this is. And I spent a week and I taught them all the basics of juggling. And then we would write back and forth and they would send me photos of themselves juggling. And after a couple of years, by golly, these kids were good. We went out of our way to work their visas and get them into the U.S. as the Philippine Pride jugglers. And they came in and, and did a, a great job. And they used uh, props like rattan juggling clubs that highlighted the fact that they were from somewhere else. And they wore traditional Philippine costumes. And they did a really good job. And I was very proud of them. And then that all broke up and they are still in the States, but uh, that only lasted a couple of years, but it was a lot of fun while it lasted. Now you've kind of moved in a, in a sort of a parallel direction in your career because you've gone from the teaching of the juggling to more public speaking. Now as a public speaker, do you go through the, the National Speakers Association? Yeah. And what is your, your new topic and your new direction that you're, you've gone on to? Yeah, well, I started doing my juggling program as a keynote for major conferences. Mm -hmm. So I was advertised as the opening speaker at conferences all over the country. And I, I did that for five years. And the pay was great because the minimum that you would get on a gig like that was $5,000 for an hour. And this was back in the late 80s and early 90s. And so I was getting more money than I'd ever gotten before. But in order to get that money, I had to get on an airplane and fly somewhere. And then I had to spend three days at the conference. I might be the closing speaker or mid-conference speaker or opener, but it was rude of me to just go in, do my gig and get out of there. So I'd spend two or three days at the conference, shaking hands, meeting people, running impromptu workshops in the lobby, things like that. And then I'd fly home. And then I would have to decompress for a couple of days. So it would take a whole week. Right. That 5,000 bucks. I could have been to three or four schools in that week. See, me and Barry, we were always rude. We just flew in, took the money, <laughs> and flew right out. <laughs> we, never no shaking hands. <laughs> no, no impromptu workshops. Well, the thing is that I wasn't only speaking about juggling right. and success. I was trying to create a movement. And... I felt that the more people I got to learn to really do it well and to teach it, the better. And also, many of these conferences were physical education conferences or physical activity conferences right. where they really appreciated the skill. But my Waterloo came when I was uh, speaking at the National Association of Wedding Planners. Okay. Now, imagine what a wedding planner looks like, okay? <laughs> Uh, fingernails, you know, she's got sure, them. Sure. She's all gussied up. She's probably wearing some kind of undergarment that pinches her. And yeah, she has some spanks on. She may be over, yeah, overweight. Maybe even wearing a wig, and and she doesn't like to sweat. And her job is totally intellectual and not physical. And what I was doing was asking five or seven hundred of these women to get up and juggle. Right. About halfway through the class, one of the women in about the third row very loudly said, Bernice, do we have to do this? <laughs> Bernice said, Mabel, we don't have to do anything. Let's sit down. I think you realize that juggling is not for everybody sometimes. Yeah, they sat down and all their friends sat down and pretty soon it was like, oh, thank you very much, ladies. I had a wonderful time. I hope you enjoyed it too. I'm Professor Confidence. Goodbye. <laughs> and that was when I decided that I would much rather work with kids in schools because I never had a kid in a right. school in in 30 years. I never had a kid go, do we have to learn this? 
every kid wanted to learn it. Of course, I was working with elementary and middle school kids. If I were working right. with high school kids, I probably would have run into the same problem. But the elementary and middle school kids all wanted an excuse to be physically active, to throw things around, and to act silly. And I gave them permission to do that. Well, now I'm not doing that speaking stuff anymore. Hmm. Uh, but you're still a speaker. Yes, but I don't do much of it. I would, except uh, Davey's 49 years old, my eldest son, the one who's wow. yeah, He's 49, and he needs his dad around. And I really like being with him. He's got not just cerebral palsy, but a colostomy, a tracheostomy, and a feeding tube. So I really enjoy spending three or four hours with him every evening. And so it would be hard to travel around the country and do this. The other thing is I really don't want to use any more carbon than I need to. Not only did I fly all over the country, but for about seven years, our family lived in a 40-foot motorhome, and we towed a stretch van behind and we were burning diesel fuel like it was going out of style. We were getting like 10 miles to the gallon, and we put over a half million miles on the motorhome. So I've done my share of putting carbon into the atmosphere. That's why I stopped going to the juggling festivals. I'm really in uh, a severe guilt about this. I really want to be a model citizen in terms of my carbon footprint. So in January 2007, I got trained by Al Gore to deliver his program. Unfortunately, his program basically says, here's how bad it's going to be when we do everything wrong. And you can't take that around <laughs> and speak on it. So I created a program that says, here's how great it's going to be when we do everything right. It's called Juggling for Success. And I've taken it to schools in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and Colorado. Wait a minute, Dave, it's called Juggling for Success, this new program, or? I'm sorry, Climate Change is Elementary. I got you. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were confused there, because it's all about climate change, this one. I get them confused constantly. <laughs> so Juggling for Success was the old program, Climate right. Change is Elementary is the new program. And so I took it around to New England and to Colorado and to Maryland. But I can't do it in Florida because our governor in Florida has said that it's against the rules for anybody who's working with any government program to mention climate change or global warming, wow. sustainability, or sea level rise. So those four terms are off limits. Did you tell him that uh, denial is not just a river in Egypt, that he should, <laughs> <laughs> he should open his eyes a bit, maybe? I know that at some point there'll be a breakthrough. I thought Hurricane Irma might be the breakthrough, but people really don't mm. connect the dots and they don't understand that the hurricane was 30% stronger because of climate change and that hurricanes are stronger, longer lasting and uh, more numerous than they ever were before. That hasn't sunk in. So I, I haven't been able to do the program here in Florida, but as a consequence, I'm working with my son, Benjamin, on trying to develop a web presence, which we call Green Action, helping people to understand the things that they can do as a family in order to reduce their carbon and water footprint. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm not full time on that because there's so much political stuff that has to be done now, thanks to our, you know, what, what yeah. has happened in the political sphere. So... <laughs> Yeah, we don't really do politics here in, on the Drop Everything podcast, but I think you and I share a similar view about our, our leadership of the country. Right. But I'm working very closely with our local government officials and working very closely with the school districts and people like that to try to get climate change education and things like that into local schools. And of course, whenever I do anything, I incorporate juggling in the program. So I usually open with juggling. When I do the climate change program, I say to the kids, now, if you come back tonight at 7 o'clock, the first 15 minutes of tonight's program is going to be juggling. And you get to learn to juggle and teach your grown-up how to juggle, too. So make sure you get here at 7, because at 7.15, we're going to put all the juggling stuff away, and we're going to sit down together and work on a green action checklist of all the things that your family can do in order to reduce their carbon and water footprint. So I'll see you tonight. And you know what? It still works. <laughs> mm -hmm. We usually outdraw 
any event they've ever had at school before. We get 40 to 50% of families back in the evening, which is unheard of. You've had a long journey through juggling. Where do you see juggling at right now? I mean, did you did it become what you thought it would be? Did you Were you sort of uh, d disappointed that it didn't really become this global thing that everyone now juggles? It kind of feels like it's almost in the same position it was back in the 80s. Like I was reading today about the football, where the, they have the concussion syndromes. And we have this wonderful activity, juggling. You know, you and I both love so much. It seems to carry, cover so many bases, educationally, physically. Why do you think it hasn't really become something everybody does, and that's in every school, as part of every physical education program? What happened? What went wrong? Yeah, well, I think at the elementary level, there's still a lot of juggling going on, particularly scarf and beanbag juggling. I think that what happened was the electronic media came along, and kids are getting into fidgeting, which is good. Yeah. It doesn't take as much skill and as much concentration, as much time as juggling. I would look at my old mentor, Kumar of India. Kumar, when he was growing up, grew up in rural India in a deprived situation, and he had nothing that he could do except manipulate the objects that he found around him. So he took china plates and figured out a way to drill a hole in a plate and make it spin on a stick and to spin a plate on its edge, on its side. And he spent hours working on that and becoming good at that. And then he turned that into an act and turn that act into a career. And when he was in his 30s, when the British were leaving India, his brother had been an activist. So he found that he had to leave India also to stay safe. And he went to equatorial Africa and he traveled around in Tanzania and Uganda, which weren't, they were just British East Africa at that point. And he went from village to village and he taught and demonstrated uh, this skill that he had, which included juggling, which included all sorts of manipulations. Well, that's what he did. He didn't go online. He didn't buy and sell property. He didn't... Uh, <laughs> didn't play Angry Birds. He didn't play Angry Birds. Yeah, he did that. And I hate to say it, but there will never be a plate spinner as skilled as Kumar was at his peak because nobody is willing to put their life into the skill anymore because there's so many diversions. Having a society with so many diversions is a benefit, but it's also in some ways a detriment that you can't focus your life on something that is as inconsequential as juggling when there are other things that society wants you to do. So I think we've been through a period when we could do that. And I don't know if that's gonna come back, but it was great while it lasted. And I'm afraid that if you give a kid a choice between a handheld device where they'll never fail, that they can do all sorts of things with, and three juggling balls, that they'll choose the handheld device 99 times out of 100. And it, relegates not just us, but everybody else who has a similar skill to the sidelines. It's okay. We had a good time doing it, but the electronic media have taken over. Handheld devices are where it's at. <laughs> well, well, on that note, <laughs> but hey, so Dave, we've come to the end of our time here on the Drop Everything podcast. What's next? What's left for Dave Finnegan? What, what's, your, what's your plans for the future? I hope to keep working in this issue of how do we all stop using fossil fuels? How do we shift the society from what we've done for the last 100 plus years, which is drive around in cars that spew noxious fumes out of the tailpipe? How do we shift everybody over the next decade to renewable energy? I think that there are basically four steps in that process. And the first step is you look around your environment, your house, and you figure out how you can close the envelope up so that you don't use as much energy. So you seal all the cracks and crevices in your house and, and you keep the heat in and keep the cold in. And then you make purchases that make sense. For instance, when you go to buy a new refrigerator, buy an Energy Star refrigerator and reduce your carbon footprint to the lowest possible level. And then go get 
solar panels for your roof and put your solar panels on because no matter how you pay for them, they're going to be cheaper than fossil fuels. Right now, you can put solar on your roof and you can provide your own electricity for about five to six cents per kilowatt hour. And you're going to pay anywhere from eight to 13 cents per kilowatt hour to buy it from the energy company. So put solar panels on your roof, get your community to put a solar array on their government buildings, help businesses decide to go solar, and then purchase an electric car. Or better still, lease last year's electric car. That's what we did. We leased last year's Nissan Leaf for less than $200 a month. And you can do that right now. You can go get a 2016 or 2017 Nissan Leaf and just pay pennies for it. And it's a lot cheaper than owning your own car. And after two or three years, you turn it back in. They'll want you to buy it because the technology will have changed so much that they won't have a market for that vehicle anymore. And so they'll say, well, what do you give me for it? And you tell them, well, I'll give you six or $8,000 for it. And you'll buy a car for six or $8,000 that you've already taken good care of because you drove it on a lease for two or three years. So those are the steps. Tighten your envelope. Go Energy Star whenever you can. Put solar panels on your house and drive electric. And if we all did that, then we would make a huge dent in this uh, problem of too much fossil fuel and too much carbon in the atmosphere. If we don't do that, then we're like Thelma and Louise. We're headed off the cliff. And the only question is, how fast are we going to go? <laughs> well, Dave, you've given us uh, great information, a great insight on the prop manufacturing and your career in Jungle Bug and as Professor Confidence. I really appreciate you taking the time and being on the Drop Everything podcast and all the years of friendship we've shared. Thank you so much, Mr. Dave Finnegan, Professor uh, Confidence. It's my pleasure. This is my legacy. Thanks, Dave. I hope you enjoy Drop Everything podcast number 51, my conversation with Dave Finnegan. Thanks, Dave. Let's give a shout out to your kids too, Ben, Dorothy, and Davey, and thank them for being part of your juggling journey. Let's also thank the IJA, the number one sponsor of the Drop Everything podcast. You can find out about the IJ at juggle.org. Interested in my toy, the Ring Dama? Go to ringdama.com and try one today. Want to light up the night? Then go to Zing Toys, get an LED Ring Dama called the Zing Dama. All right, drop everything except when you're juggling.